Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the new version, where this is Jem talking to you kind of on his own, and Greg's now a little bit more behind the scenes, but I don't know, he's in charge of the edit. He could jump in at any time to virtually heckle me or add his own bit at the end or whatever. So what I want to do now is what I used to do on my other podcast called Neon, where basically you take a piece of, of pop culture, something like a movie or a TV show, video game, piece of music even, and you show how underneath it, either deliberately or accidentally, it's been influenced by real history. So condensed histories will still be about history. It's just this time I'm going to take you into it in a slightly different way. And I thought I would start off this time round with Lord of the Rings, which means we're going to have to talk about the Anglo-Saxons, we're going to have to talk about racism, and we're going to have to talk about what makes a good story. So, let's get on with it, shall we? Lord of the Rings, in case you don't know, is a sequel, a rather superior sequel to The Hobbit, written by J.R.R. Tolkien. The Hobbit was written basically just before World War II, and Lord of the Rings was written shortly after World War II. But Tolkien himself actually served as a soldier in World War I. A little bit more on that in a bit. But first of all, it's worth talking about the man himself, because so much has been layered on top of him. Lord of the Rings is an incredibly important book. Prior to that, there had been all kinds of books about legends and monsters and heroes, but they were all kind of built on folklore, or they're all built on existing stories. So I'm thinking about King Arthur, for example. However, with Lord of the Rings, Tolkien created a whole new world. And with just, you know, that and The Hobbit, he invented an entire genre. And all you have to do is go into, well, if you're still allowed to go into bookstores or indeed just go onto Amazon and just type in the word fantasy fiction and you will see there are literally thousands of books and all of them owe a debt of gratitude to Lord of the Rings, be it you know something incredibly popular um, uh, that's been a huge phenomenon over the last 10 years, Game of Thrones, to even things like Harry Potter. 
I guess I'll sort of bring a little bit of both of those into it in, in a bit. But first of all, let's talk about the man Tolkien himself. As I said, he served in World War I. He was a Catholic, very strict Catholic. And he basically, we're, we're talking about this kind of Oxbridge, you know, Oxbridge, Cambridge, sort of like university professor. He was a specialist in Anglo-Saxon uh, history and language. This is a boy who, while he was still a teenager, independent of school or any other uh, teaching, taught himself Anglo-Saxon. Indeed, the, perhaps the most famous piece of literature in Anglo-Saxon English is Beowulf, and we have his translation of it. So this is a man who, when you start trying to say, well, you know, it everything's an analogy. Um, everything in Lord of the Rings, really, he's talking about other things. He is on the record saying, no, it isn't. And if you look at the man himself, he wasn't really worried about the modern world. He died in 1973, and it was the popularity of Lord of the Rings. I love this little story that basically all these sort of uh, stoned hippies in the 60s, um, not understanding the time difference between Britain and America, and you know people also not understanding the need to perhaps protect their phone numbers. He would be phoned up in the middle of the night by hippies, sort of like asking him questions about the Hobbits or um, Galadriel or what have you. But it really sort of soaked into the counterculture. Uh, and so when it first came out, it just knocked everybody's socks off. Full disclosure, The Lord of the Rings is what he wanted it to be. It ended up being a trilogy of books. Um, we're talking about The Fellowship of the Rings, The Two Towers, and Return of the King. And he hated the name of the third book because he goes, well, doesn't that kind of give it away? But it was never meant to be a trilogy. But because Britain was still suffering shortages after World War II, Nobody could basically afford to print a thousand page book, and so it got chopped into three bits. It does have some pretty noticeable points where they can pause. So it, it is a work of literary genius, and what I would say is it's the most important, best selling, poorly written book in history because. Tolkien was not a fan of necessary natural natural prose or indeed sort of like very descriptive environments. The amount of times when they're going on marches, forced marches, and they tighten their belts, that phrase is used a ridiculous amount of time. But if you see what he's influenced by, the, the Beowulfs of this world and things like that, then you understand that he's kind of writing to a formula. The Anglo-Saxons didn't have paragraphs and paragraphs of deep, dripping uh, description in any of their stories or indeed in any of their chronicles. And the idea of like capturing speech wasn't really, you'd got, you had speeches, but you didn't have dialogue uh, really in things like Beowulf, for example. He's writing it from a very ancient tradition of literature. And once you understand that, you can forgive him a little bit more. But as a kid, I didn't know any of this stuff. I just had a hankering for fantasy. And I think like a lot of kids, I read The, the Hobbit. And what's interesting about The Hobbit, and Peter Jackson has been criticised about this with the movies, is that clearly when Tolkien was writing it, he started with almost a nursery rhyme kind of thing. 
underneath a hill in a hole there lived a hobbit is the opening line of the the hobbit and it goes not a nasty dirty oozy uh, and and it's it it sounds like something like the cat in the hat or well actually perhaps a little bit older but you know the hans christian andersen sort of folk tales so really you know and and then the dwarves turn up and then there's sort of like this funny scene as he sort of like bilbo baggins the hobbit is trying to feed the dwarves and they're sort of making a mess of his pantry you get words like pantry which you just don't use anymore and and so you get a few chapters where this is like a eight-year-old's kid's bedtime story and yet it ends with the battle of the five armies and it's a very different book by the time you get to the end of it he's clearly evolved his writing he's become more confident and more ambitious in his storytelling so with Peter Jackson when he's making the movies he had to make sure that the the hobbit was ramped up the the beginning of the hobbit had to be feel more like the end of the hobbit or it would look a bit weird and also on top of that the whole thing had to fit into lord of the rings which was a you know one of the most epic stories ever told if you don't know what the story is i'll give you the very bare bones but basically the lord of the rings is about a ring an evil person called sauron creates what well, he's sort of, sort of a demigod but anyway he creates a ring of power that basically corrupts anybody who who holds on to it any human at least who does so and as long as that rings around his power will still remain and although he was defeated many millennia ago his power is resurging and basically this wizard called gandalf recognizes that the ring held by this silly little hobbit which is kind of like a child-sized human who don't even bother wearing shoes because they got sort of tough soles of their feet whose main preoccupations are things like gardening and farming this sort of silly little country bumpkin has the most powerful magical item in the entire realm and the story is how they managed to get that ring through all kinds of epic adventures and huge wars um eventually into spoiler for a um, book that's more than 60 maybe 70 years old um uh, eventually managed to cast it into a a volcano to destroy the ring and destroy the evil once and for all. So you can see that there is, um, you know, there's the foundations of the hero story, the hero's quest is absolutely there in Lord of the Rings. But as a kid, uh, all I knew was I liked fantasy and I enjoyed The Hobbit. And my mum said to me, then you might want to try Lord of the Rings. It's quite a daunting, quite a big book. And when I got my copy of, of Lord of the Rings, I didn't start at the front because I was blown away by the fact that this made-up fantasy book had an appendices. And in my experience, the only books that had an appendix at the back were textbooks. So how, how could you have all these points of reference? Things like family trees, entire alphabets of the elves and dwarves. What's all this stuff doing there at the back? And it just brought the whole world of Middle-earth to life to me, as it's done for millions of other people. Lord of the Rings is one of the top 10 best-selling books of all time. And the movies have also grossed more than six or seven billion pounds globally, or billion dollars globally, I should say, um, including the Hobbit movies as well. Right now, Amazon is making a TV show of a sort of set way before both The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. We know very little about it at the moment, but they've already spent 200 million to get all the rights of all the bits, including the movies. So in case they want to use any of the movies, they spent more than $200 million before they even started writing the scripts or filming it. You don't do that unless you think that there's an audience out there. So, so well done, Tolkien. You've created perhaps one of the most popular and enduring fantasy stories 
of all time. So now let's get to the racism bit, shall we? Like a lot of things that were written in the past, they never knew that there would be social uh, media. They wouldn't know that people's sort of like ideas would change. And, and basically on social media, you will be able to find somebody who's offended by absolutely everything. You know, you, you people who are offended by the idea of sleeping in beds or people who are offended by this, that and the other. Now, look, we can all agree that you should be offended by racism. The whole point of racism is you are judging somebody before you know anything about them, and that is wrong. It is wrong in every situation. Now, if you meet somebody from a, a different race or religion, and they are horrible to you, well, then you have a right to think that they are horrible. You do not have the right to think that everybody from that race and religion is horrible. That's not, not how it works. You know, there is no quota of idiots in the world. There are idiots from every race, religion, country, sexual orientation, etc. So, yeah. Um, and then there are beautiful people in all these areas, too. So what has this got to do with Lord of the Rings? Well, I've heard people saying, look, it's, it's very unnuanced. You've got the Easterlings, the sort of like the bad people from the East, and you've got the Orcs and the Uruk-hai, and these are just shown, shown as salivating monsters. And it's, it's basically summarizing an entire race as it's bad. Yes, but let's unpack that for a moment, shall we? First of all, in literature, you need to have problems for the protagonist to overcome. Let's take it away from Lord of the Rings for a moment. Let's talk, think of your average James Bond movie. Now, we all know, fundamentally, when we pay our money to see a Bond film, we know he's going to win. But we don't know how he's going to win. And so we need a sense of danger for Bond. Just imagine your favorite Bond film, where what happens is the first time Bond meets the bad guy, or indeed the bad guy's evil henchman, and the first thing that happens is Bond just slaps them around, beats them into submission and handcuffs them, and then they manage to escape to continue the movie. That's a bad film. That's a bad story, because James Bond's already overcome the problem. So all he has to do is find the person again and just do what he did the first time round. And so it's the same thing with Lord of the Rings. There are all these problems and difficulties getting in the way. Why doesn't Tolkien talk about all the great philosophers or chefs of the orc world? Because that's not what the story's about. The fact is that there are these monsters chasing uh, the heroes across this continent. Uh, and, you know, if they catch them, they're going to be killed. That's what makes a satisfying story. But then we get people saying, you know, and, and this is a big thing in, in stuff like uh, Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons. It's like, well, why, why should we start talking about races? You know, that is racist. And it's like, no, maybe we need to change the word to species because not everybody from America is, uh, is, is a great swimmer. OK, that would be a racist statement to say everybody in America is a great swimmer. No, they're not. Now, you might be going, well, why is he talking about uh, swimmers? Well, because there was a great American Olympiad swimmer called Michael Phelps. He won so many gold medals at the various Olympics. He's an amazing, amazing gold medalist. OK, he is one of the best humanity can create to swim. However, put the best humanity can create versus a very average dolphin, the very average dolphin will outswim Michael Phelps every time. That's not a racist statement. That's because the species of dolphins is better at swimming than any human being ever could possibly be. However, dolphins are rubbish at driving cars, okay? So, 
if we change the word to species, then orcs are these sort of like these brute force creatures. They are sort of slightly cannibalistic um, and they are attracted to dark power and might is right. You know, I guess kind of like a great white shark. They don't mean to be evil and bad, but they're going to eat seals as they swim past them in the water. So if you're getting super upset about Lord of the Rings or Dungeons and Dragons or Warhammer, I think the first important thing is you need what well, you need to tell the story. OK, um, now I'm not going to bring in those other ones, but just with Lord of the Rings, you know, the elves are good. Uh, the orcs are bad and it's, it's, it's not racist. OK, but then you know, let's just add it. If you want to start having this conversation, as I said, the, the thing about um, racism is you're just judging somebody just on what they are. Well, again, trying to have a sit down conversation with a great white shark and saying, you know, you sure you want to eat me is going to result in you being eaten. OK, it's what they are. So there is, this, like I say, with species, there are just certain natures that we have to accept. And finally, and of course, the most important one that you've already worked out, orcs don't exist. Now, if orcs were a genuine sort of subspecies of humanity that existed on planet Earth and they've been portrayed as this horrific barbaric group that just want to kill people, that's just wrong on all levels. But they don't exist. So you can't you, you can't be racist or biased to something that simply doesn't exist. It doesn't have any feelings. It has no social implications whatsoever. And indeed, there are games of Lord of the Rings. And as you're hacking down the orcs, you don't feel bad about it. A bit like with Indiana Jones shooting all the Nazis, they're human beings. They might have, you know, only just been conscripted into the army, but we know the Nazis were bad. And so we're absolutely fine with uh, Indiana Jones just slaughtering dozens of Nazis because we can all agree Nazis are a bad thing, okay? So, that, I'm going to park the whole sort of uh, racial thing there. But I've, I've started talking about the Anglo-Saxon side of things, but there are so many things from the early Middle Ages or the Anglo-Saxon era that are, that are in the Lord of the Rings. One of the things I noticed in the appendices is there is the alphabet of the dwarves, or they're called the dwarvic runes. And I started looking at those and go, oh, that's really cool. And I think, oh, they look kind of familiar. And they are just instantly lifted out of Scandinavian runes. Now, the interesting thing about the Vikings, which I've already said on other podcasts with Greg, is technically the Vikings didn't exist, okay? Uh, it's the Scandinavian word for wanderer. Everybody in Scandinavia did not call themselves Vikings. If you got on a ship and went went uh, eastward or westward or whatever, uh, you were all considered Vikings at that point. And then when you came back, you were just Eric the farmer again. So, but for ease of conversation, I'll say Vikings, because you know what I'm talking about here. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But it was a semi-literate society. Uh, they would, you know, when they plundered places like England, they would grab priests. Uh, they loved sacking places like Lindisfarne, Holy Island, or generally any site of monasteries because priests don't fight back. There was always good liquor there, the communion wine, and also bits of gold as well. We would call them things like holy crosses and stuff like that. Obviously, the Vikings didn't understand that they were desecrating a holy site. It was almost like a, a supermarket for Vikings. Um, but the other thing that the, the monks were is literate. And sometimes they weren't just sort of taken back to Scandinavia to be sold into slavery and perhaps work on farms. But sometimes they did actually write stuff down as well. However, they did have their own form of writing. These uh, these Nordic runes, these Viking runes, if you want to call them. And they're very much straight lines, kind of slashed together. They would have something like the letter V or you know, the, the trunk of a letter T, but then you might have two slashes down from that, uh, sort of like one diagonal, sorry, one line up diagonally down on the side. They're all, you know, that you don't get anything like a letter E with lots of curls in it because these were to be etched into metal or to be chipped into stone. So you couldn't have any pretty curls. It all had to be almost like brutalist architecture. It had to have nice straight lines, easy enough to sketch into hot metal or to, or to chip into stone. And what's interesting is they didn't sit down and, you know, write out their histories in this. They would put it on perhaps markers of boundaries. They would put it on swords. And when we translate the words, it was, you know, so occasionally, you do occasionally get things like, this is Eric's. You know, in other words, ah, oh, property of Eric. Yeah, so we know whose sword this is. But more often than not, it would have sort of words of power. Things like, you know, wolf or, you know, dragon or something like that. And, and the clearly when they wrote, it wasn't the way we would use an alphabet. It was kind of almost like a, a religious ritual. You know, how do I improve this steel sword? I improve it by putting in a word of power on the hilt, which makes the, the owner of it, you know, imbued with the power of a wolf when they're in battle. And you get this idea of forging 
and um, of, of, of power. I mentioned the ring of power. And, and this is sort of very much sort of tied together with what Tolkien was saying, but also um, how, how the Scandinavian cultures sort of saw things like smithing. Um, indeed, it is worth remembering that that Thor, the god of lightning, was also a blacksmith because, you know, he's got the hammer of Thor and he would not just use it to fly in a Marvel movie um, or, or produce lightning, but he would literally might make mighty magical weapons with with uh, uh, with Mjolnir, the, the hammer. So you can see that Tolkien is riffing off these ancient civilizations that he's been in love with for decades of his life. And a lot of the uh, names as well. So, for example, you get Ethel. You've probably heard of things like Ethelred, uh, and you get uh, Ethelfleda, and you know, this Ethel is at the beginning of lots of Anglo-Saxon words. And you can translate it several different ways. Um, the, if you like, the most literal way is to say that anybody has the Ethel at the beginning of their name, uh, like uh, Ethelstan, Ethelstan um, that's the first king of England, for example, um, it is uh, a, a holy, or no, it's not so much holy, but like um, divinely crowned. You are part of a royal lineage if you have that name. And the Anglo-Saxons thought that names had certain levels of power to them. However, the more poetic way of translating it, and indeed it sounds like it to the modern ear, is the fantastical creature Elf. So you get the orcs were genuinely made up by Tolkien. There is no literary equivalent of that. But he's got trolls, he's got elves, he's got dwarves. Um, these are all creatures that have been in, in European folklore for millennia. And the idea of the dwarves or mining underground, they're, they're really important. And it is also worth pointing out that there are echoes of what he's doing in Lord of the Rings with uh, Wagner's ring cycle. Now, before I go into huge details there, um, the, uh, the ring cycle um, is four different operas. If you were to watch them back to back, they're about 14 hours long. So you always watch them in chunks. Um, and it's it's got the famous Ride of the Valkyries in it, okay? The Valkyries, so you can see it, it, that itself is pulling on on this sort of Scandinavian, old pagan European traditions. It is anti-Semitic as well, for the record. But you've again got these kind of um, dwarves who are miners in there as well. So, it, it, you know, Tolkien sort of, he repurposed some things, but then he took them into all other kind of, uh, a whole other level. So, you know, with the dwarves in Lord of the Rings, we know that they are master forgers, but master sort of cr craftsmen as well. We get the whole around, uh, the whole thing around, um, the Hobbit with Erebor, which is this massive underground city under a mountain, which was owned by the dwarves, which was full of fantastical jewels and gold and things like that. And it was wiped out by dragons, Smaug. And that's kind of the trigger for the Hobbit. Um, but then in Lord of the Rings, they go to one of the great dwarven cities underground, Khazad-dum or Moria. And uh, unbeknownst to them, it's been taken over by orcs and goblins. So they're attacked there. It's one of the most amazing sequences in the movies. I mean, it's, it's great in the books too, but 
if you have not, like, I guess the thing, I've heard people push back on Lord of the Rings saying it's, it's real fantasy, isn't it? It's not slightly fantastical. It's full on fantasy. And you're right. You know, it's not like Harry Potter, where a boy lives in a very ordinary suburban setting and is drawn into this fantastical world. No, bang. We start with dwarves and dragons and, you know, wizards and all this kind of stuff. And you get phrases like quickly to the bridge of Kazadum and things like that, you know, and it's all said with straight face in the movie and it's all said completely seriously uh, with very little sense of humor in the books, too. So if you can't make that jump, then, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to do it. But if you do, if you want to be whisked away and let's face it, with the world of covid that we have at the moment, if you want to be whisked away to something completely different, you've never given these a go then, oh my goodness, I'm so jealous of you that you're going to go on this journey because it's going to be absolutely spectacular. Now, bringing in a couple of the other sort of literary sort of giants in this area, um, we, you know, for, for starters, we get things like uh, Dungeons and Dragons, the board game, and the board game, the role-playing game, sorry, not a board game, absolutely not. Um, and, you know, the, the first edition by Gary Gygax, uh, you know, he's just, he's just pulling from all the fantastical stuff. So there's a lot of Lord of the Rings in the uh, early D&D, which you know, later on they had the confidence to try and evolve it from there. But a lot of people don't realize how many of the monsters, you know, there's long lists of monsters that your characters could fight, are taken from all the cultures of the world. It's a, it's a weird depository of, of sort of like, oh, wow, okay, a djinn, D-J-I-N-N. That's a spirit from the Middle East. We've mistranslated it as genie. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, so we're, we're not doing about D&D uh, &D at the moment. But then you get something like Game of Thrones, where George R.R. R. Martin his name's George Martin. He put in the RR in reference to J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, so that shows you how much he's influenced by him. But if you like, and it's got dragons in it, but if you like, it's very different. The, the, the great thing about Game of Thrones is it's really about the dynastic struggles. It's, a, it's about the politics and not just one noble warrior heading off and going to fight the, the, the good fight. And, and if you like, if you want to talk about Lord of the Rings' restrictions, the good people are goodly good and the bad people are badly bad. And there isn't a lot of nuance there. Okay. You know, particularly if you get someone like Aragorn, the sort of the, the man who should be king, but doesn't want that responsibility. He is an absolute archetype of the noble warrior. But if you look in history, there are almost none of them. Okay. They just, everybody's got flaws. Everybody, but Aragorn doesn't. Okay. And, um, uh, and so you get something like Game of Thrones where everybody's flawed and you see the situation and struggle from different people's points of view. And, and the thing about Lord of the Rings is uh, eventually a group of nine, the Fellowship of the Ring, which is what the first book and first movie is named after. This group of ragtag individuals head off to try and do the mission. Okay. And, Again, spoiler, out of all of them, well, I guess technically one of them dies, but they come back a different color of robes for the record, not of skin. Um, that's just weird. But anyway, uh, there's a whole load of other stuff around that. But no, only one person actually dies and stays dead out of the nine. So actually, it's a very high survival rate, whereas something like like Game of Thrones, because you see it from everybody's point of view, you can kill anybody and this and the story can still work. It can still survive. So. Putting that to one side, then you get something like Harry Potter, which 
is a, a masterpiece of different sources of literature. So it's, it's very much got the structure. Uh, most of the books, at least, very much have the same structure as a murder mystery. Stuff that's alluded to very early on in the book turns out to be vitally important at the end, and there is a mystery to be uncovered. Now, that might be Agatha Christie's Poirot finding out who murdered things, or it might be Harry finding out what a philosopher's stone is, for example, or where it is. Um, then you've got, you, you've got riffs of things. So um, there's Shelob or Shelob, um, the Queen of Spiders in uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, he, she is in the second book, but in the third movie, just to confuse you on that one. Um, but you've then got the giant spiders in the Forbidden Forest in Harry Potter. You've got the nine Nazgul, the nine black riders who kind of sniff out and are sort of ethereal and are sort of like relentless in their hunting down of the people who have the rings, they want to bring them back to uh, to Sauron. Um, and they're sort of like wraiths or spirits. Dementors, in other words, are ripped off of the nine. Uh, so, you know, there are, so Harry, you know, Dumbledore as Gandalf, you know, why say anything straight when you can sort of say it as a riddle and then wander off and, you know, you could fix it in 10 seconds, but no, get the stupid little kid to do it. And stupid little kid could apply to Frodo, Bilbo or Harry. Okay. So yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not denigrating, you know, the, what is a new story? You know, all the basic stories and plots have already been used up. We just now mix them around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not in any way denigrating J.K. Rowling. She did an amazing job of pulling together these diverse different areas and re-spinning, uh, spinning them together to create this, this absolute phenomenon that is Harry Potter. So please don't, don't at me on that. Um, the other thing worth mentioning about the sort of Harry Potter books is they happen in a boarding school. And there's this whole tradition in the 19 sort of like 20s, 30s, 40s of these sort of boarding school uh, japes, as it were. So, you know, who would have thought to pull that together with a murder mystery and Lord of the Rings? And, you know, so 10 out of 10 for that. So I, don't, I, I would like to do one on Harry Potter at some point, so I best, I best I shouldn't go too much into that. So with Lord of the Rings, what you've got is genuinely the start of an entire literary movement, something that's inspired a multi-billion dollar entertainment franchise. Um, you can buy games, video games of, of Lord of the Rings. You can buy Lord of the Rings Lego. You can buy Lord of the Rings um, board games, you know, rolling dice and sort of like you're pushing little figures around and things like that. So, you know, any type of Lord of the Rings, you can buy sort of like reproductions of the ring or swords from the movie and, and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, Tolkien never had any idea that this stuff was going to happen, but here we are with it. And, um, you know, it's actually his grandson, I think his name's Christopher Tolkien, who sort of like looked over the, the, you know, the, the works and writings. And it's obvious that when you get someone like Peter Jackson, there's a lot of reverence. And he did monkey around with some stuff. Now we can argue about The Hobbit all you want, but the changes he made in Lord of the Rings are all for the better. They make more narrative sense. It makes it more satisfying. Um, but, uh, yeah, the other thing that Tolkien did is he just kept writing. And there are, books and books of just his his musings and the background sort of mythology of this entire Middle Earth realm. And so you get the book, The Silmarillion, which was the first collection of just you know, other stories. And literally it takes you back to the story of the creation of, the, of Middle Earth. And it's pretty much unreadable. It's almost like reading, you know, ancient religious scriptures. It's not meant to be a story. It's meant to be this happened and then, then this happened and this is how it all worked. But all of this, 
you know, this is a man who created the entire elven language in his head, okay? He, you know, repurposed dead uh, uh, Norwegian runes and turned them into a language of the dwarves. He created an entire history and creation myth around this fantasy world. And if any, I'm not going to say he's the only one who's done it, but there is nobody out there who's done it since him that didn't just basically sit down and look at how he did it and took it from there. So, you know, I have huge amounts of respect for Tolkien. Um, it, he, you know, he, he genuinely created an absolute uh, masterpiece. As I said, it's flawed. You know, is there anything, such thing as perfect out there? But, um, you know, if you, I would say, if you don't know much about all this stuff, don't start with the books. Start with, uh, and again, maybe you don't want to start with the Hobbit movies because people tend to think that they're uh, inferior to Lord of the Rings. But I tell you what, you know, the final Lord of the Rings movie won 11 Oscars, for heaven's sakes. So, yeah, watch those. Watch the, uh, and you, you know, if you really like them, then then do the the um, the Hobbit movies. But just so you know, there are, there are even two different versions of these movies. There's the theatrical release, and then all the stuff they they had to take out to lower the runtime, but is you know in the books or is important to the plot or you know, just really interesting character development. So they're the extended versions as well. And if you were to watch all of them back to back, that's running about 14 hours as well. So, you know, it's as length of a decent TV series by, by that point. So I think I've hopefully, if you don't know much about Lord of the Rings, at least I've given you a stepping stone into it. And I encourage you to give it a go. If you do know about Lord of the Rings, maybe you didn't quite know how much of uh, the old world is there. I will end with the one bit of undeniable new world that was influenced by Tolkien himself, his own life that's in the books, because Tolkien in World War One served in the Somme. And there's a period in uh, Lord of the Rings uh, when Frodo, another hobbit who's got the ring, and Sam are crossing the dead marshes. And uh, in these marshes, you can see the bodies from from uh, soldiers who, and warriors who died in battles long ago. And you do not have to be a psychologist to say clearly this is some of his wartime recollections echoing in this fantasy. But apart from that... It is not a diatribe against industrialization, nor is it a racist construct or anything like that, because he's not pulling from the modern world and, you know, uh, modern day society and social media. He's pulling from the Anglo-Saxon era and the time of Viking invasion of the British Isles. So until you are an actual lecturer, an actual professor of something like Anglo-Saxon, you don't get to start judging this. That's where I'm going to end. Uh, I'm going to say, look, you can find me. I'm at Gem Deducho on Twitter. If you want to continue this conversation, I'd love to hear from you. I'm History Gems with a G on uh, Facebook. I post lots of uh, fun history stuff there. Um, you know, Greg, I don't know if he's going to stick in his own bit here about saying, hey, you know, talk to me about uh, Greg and Felicity's adventures. You know, there's lots of fun stuff going on there as well. Please do support uh, support Greg. We're talking. He's one of these people where he's a live performer and there's no live performance going on at the moment. So maybe buy him a Kofi, a coffee uh, online. I'm sure there'll be a link underneath this if, if you can, you know, two, three quid. It'd be lovely to, you know, if you could just sort of like go throw over a coffee his way, but don't throw a coffee at him. That's it for now. Uh, let me know if you like this and hopefully speak to you soon.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 